Hey, everyone. Before we get into today's interview, just wanted to drop a little reminder to stay up to date with all the latest episodes of On The Margin. You can subscribe to the BlockWorks Macro YouTube. Just go up there, just click the little uh, subscribe button, or you can click the links at the top of this episode. It'll take you over to Apple, Spotify, whatever your preferred platform is. Just subscribe there. If you could, leave a rating and review. Really appreciate it. All right, on with the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another weekly roundup edition of On The Margin. Today, I'm joined, as always, by my positive co-host, Ms. Mark Yusko, and I'm giving you positive because we're doing our predictions episode. That's right. And good vibes for 2024. That's That's right. That's right. Uh, I thought you meant positive as in, I am positive this is going to happen, as in, uh, you know, frequently wrong, never in doubt. I'm like, well, no, occasionally wrong, but never in doubt. Strong opinion is loosely held. Uh, I also thought you were going to give me uninjured since my co-host is is a little injured today, but we won't go we won't go there. So, you know, I got a little pushback on ending the the sock reveal last week. So yeah. so maybe I maybe I won't end it. You know, it's interesting. I I guess I actually could. You know, we started doing the show just a little over a year ago. And I realized we started doing it right in the middle of Hurricane Sam. And so, you know, you and I can take a hundred percent credit for the entire pump since 16.5 to 43,000. I mean, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. We love to take credit. We love to take credit. And and, and because of that, so I got the green candle pants on today to celebrate that. And uh, I have the, you know, original, you know, uh, Genesis block sock game on. So even though I'm in San Francisco, I I got a little swag from the game last night. We got to go to the Warriors game courtesy of, of my buddy Harris Barton and I uh, had fun with uh, my son and daughter-in-law and and then my other son and my wife, my wife and uh, it was freezing so I had to pick up a little swag which I actually kind of like it's got a nice color so go Warriors you're looking good Mark you're looking sharp as per usual and I'm glad I'm glad we're not doing the end of the soccer reveal I love the soccer reveal so All right. Um, All right. I would encourage that uh, although you do make me nervous standing up on that chair. And then it'll be, then it'll be bad. And, but Hey, haven't fallen yet. And so that's a good thing. All right. So this is, I, I love, I mean, this is such a great time of year because we can do be a little bit contemplative and retrospective about what happened in 2023, uh, but also look forward into, into 2024. And, you know, maybe before we get into predictions for this year, it might be worth just revisiting the predictions last year um and not even necessarily ours but i I feel like that the main idea going into 2023 which was just so wrong and incorrect was that this was going to be a horrible year for assets and that we were going to enter a recession i think it was mark correct me if i'm wrong but it was something like a hundred percent of the economists surveyed by bloomberg thought that this was going to be the year of recession uh you know continued down downtrend in both prices uh the stock market prices that we saw in 2022 and what we basically got was the opposite of that. We had some pretty epic GDP prints, stock market, stock market has soared, and crypto has really recovered. So maybe it bears, bears asking the question, why, why did we get it so wrong? Going why did people get it so wrong? And, and, yeah. and to, to your point, Michael, I, I've been you know, doing this stuff a long time, you know, 35 plus years. I can't remember. And that doesn't, you know, my memory is starting to go a little bit, but I cannot remember a time when people got it so wrong, like, and look, I'm, myself included. I mean, I'm not, I'm not throwing everyone else under the bus. Like, oh, I was so right. No, no, no. I, I, I maybe wasn't a hundred, you know, if, if you had a, a meter of, you know, no recession to always, I maybe wasn't a hundred percent sure, but I was, I was looking at the liquidity data and I was looking at, at, um, you know, a bunch of things and, and it just seemed that we were, the Jerome was was intent on you know hiking till something broke. I guess the one the one thing that I think people did miss, and uh, we can take a little credit because we did talk about it, and I think we got it. Although, <laughs> then got another piece of the prediction, like epically wrong, which I'll, I'll get to. So one thing we did talk about in November, December last year was that. China had turned on the liquidity machine. While the Fed was reducing liquidity, China had pumped a trillion, there's that T word again, a trillion dollars into the economy. And so, and so the thing I got just totally wrong, like more wrong than, than maybe anything I've ever gotten was 
I looked at that and said, well, clearly then Chinese stocks will do great. The dragon market will roar. And it's been a straight downhill. I mean, we're at the, we're at five year lows. Um, and then, then on the last day of last week, you know, the, the government came out and, and started to ban the, or not limit the amount of time you can play games. And Tencent was down 15% in a day. So it's not that I, I can take credit for that one either, but, but I think people missed how much liquidity was being created. And then clearly we all missed that we'd have the third largest banking collapse in history. And that would be a good thing because the Fed would then pump another $300 billion into the economy. So I think we just all missed liquidity. Yeah. All right, everyone, we will be back to the program in just a moment. But before we do, I wanted to give you the inside scoop about something that we've been cooking up at BlockWorks these last couple of months. So in March of this coming year, in London, BlockWorks is going to be gathering 1,200 of the world's largest asset managers. That's fund managers and allocators, financial institutions, think big banks, payment providers, etc., and professional traders at the largest institutionally focused conference in digital assets, DAS London. Now, it's very rare that you get the likes of JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Point72, the large HFTs, the family offices all in one room at the same time. So if you want to know what the big money is doing in digital assets these days, this is the conference for you. To give you an early sneak peek at some of the stuff that we're going to be talking about, one, the intersection of macro and digital assets. And where are we in the market cycle? We're going to be talking about real world assets, so that's stable coins, on-chain treasuries, all of that fun stuff. And we're going to be talking about things from the allocator perspective. So what are the big money managers in crypto doing these days? And because you are such a good listener of On The Margin, I'm giving you an extra code MARGIN20. So click the link at the bottom of this episode. Again, use code MARGIN20, and I will see you in sunny London town in March. Well, I remember one of one of the predictions that I had going into 2023, which was half right, but I'm going to give it wrong because the impetus is that we saw a bottom in crypto prices, but that there was still more pain to go in the equity markets. And honestly, I was just wrong about that because they both went straight up. And I think the the reason I'm not even going to give myself half credit for that is because the reasoning behind it was was incorrect, which was that we saw this idiosyncratic dip in crypto prices that had to correct upwards, whereas there was still pain to come in in equity markets. But that was just that was just ultimately not not necessarily that was not a correct prediction. Honestly. Yeah, but I look, I'm 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 giving you I'm giving you credit. We, we collectively, and it, it, this is this is a we show. I mean, we have our own opinions, but at the end, we are projecting, you know, some some information. We got crypto right. I, I think we did. We, too. we nailed it. We we nailed it. And when people were throwing stones, like, no way, you don't you don't understand. Like, well, there are cycles for a reason. And we just kept talking about the cycle and kept talking about how we were going to be in this crypto summer and that we were going to, you know, drift toward fair value. And we had Tim on and we talked about fair value, and people finally got a sense of the Metcalf's law model. And you know, here we are. At, yeah. at 43.44, right below the fair value of 51, we're still not to the halving, so we still got time to get there in that in that slow drift. But the fireworks are about to start, and so I, I I'm I'm, I'm going to give us a little pat on the back for that one. I think so too. All right, let's uh, let's transition into. Oh, by the way, Mark, I, I forgot to say. So I'm in San Francisco with with my son and daughter-in-law, and just a shout out to. Again, gratitude for for all the people that share their their coffee with us on Saturday morning. I'm walking through Japantown in this mall. My son's buying some manga, and I'm walking with my wife. And this guy stops and says, "Are you Mark?" And I'm like, "Yeah." Say, "Oh my god, I, I watch every week." My wife's like, "What is going on?" It's so That's cool. Amazing. I I I I just I, I and it's not it's like an ego thing. I just love the fact. There are people who share their time with us because that is a gift and that really engage in the conversation that we're having. And so um, thank you to, um, he's probably watching and probably, you know, he gets a shout out. But, um, you know, it's happened, I said, it's happened to me in airports. I had a pilot from a Southwest flight come over. Uh, it happens at football games. I, I just think it's so cool. And 
very grateful for that. Yeah, we appreciate you all. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in and listening to Mark and I uh, prognosticate because it's a lot of fun for us and, and we do it for, for all of you. So um, yeah, with that, let's, let's get right into 2024. Mark, you want to lead us off with the, uh, the first prediction? Uh, you know, I, you know, you're, you're the organizer. I'm the, I'm the guy who just wings it. So I don't know where you want to start. You want to start macro, you want to start markets, you want to start crypto, tell me where you want to start and then, then we'll go there. Let's, why don't we start with macro? Give us a, give us a macro prediction. Yeah. So I, I think this 2024 is, is going to surprise to the um to the downside i think again not, not collapse not depression but I, I i just think that as everyone was on one side of the boat last year negative i think yeah everybody's come back on the other side of the boat positive and yet just about every indicator that you can look at from a macro perspective Leading economic indicators just made new cycle lows. I mean, like the lowest in the last four cycles. Um, in fact, I don't know that we've ever, I think this is right. I don't think we've ever had this many consecutive negative readings of LEI ever. Like <laughs> crazy. And so that that's one. Uh, PMIs uh, are down. Now, PMIs have turned. Raul's been talking about this. I know you were just talking with Jim Bianco. Uh, Jim may have been talking about PMIs, um, but I, I think there's there's a lot of macro data that that's a little negative. I think first quarter GDP is going to surprise a lot of people how low it is, but that's a cyclical thing. And even though they seasonally adjust, they don't seem to do it right. So it's always the lowest quarter. Uh, and I think they could be closing in on zero. I don't know that it'll go negative. Depends on weather. You know, if we have if we have a weather shock, like I haven't heard any, I haven't heard any forecast of polar vortex or anything like that. You know, in fact, to that point, it's funny. I haven't heard anybody talking about global warming anymore because we've had you know cold weather. I don't know. I but weather, I think, is is the the swing factor that I can't predict. Yeah. Uh, so I actually had a really similar prediction for you, which was basically exactly that which is I think 2024 is going to be a rockier year ultimately than people are predicting. And I'm going to try to get a little bit more specific on that, but it was the exact same rationale, which was going into 2023, everyone was extremely pessimistic. You saw that CNN indicator, the fear and greed index, it was like maxed out to fear. Again, something like 100% of economists surveyed by Bloomberg saw a recession incoming and ultimately everyone was wrong. Well, why was everyone wrong? Because the the factor that was controlling, A, there, I think there's just some amount of mean reversion that is generally correct, right? If like if you have an absolutely horrendous year in stocks and bonds, the you know, it typically doesn't the the way that human psychology sort of works is people said, Oh, we had a really bad year last year, now we've got to sort of correct. Right. So there's yeah. some amount of mean reversion that ultimately ends up happening. That mean reversion that worked positively for us in 2023 might work negatively for us in 2024, and we can sort of resume the the more negative trend. The other thing is, is just uh, when something's really negative and everyone believes the same thing, there's a positioning element. Uh, so everyone's positioned in the same way, which sets up for sort of counter rotational plays. And then there's a there's a pricing in element, which is that all the negative stuff had already been has already been priced in. And one maybe interesting tell was this last FOMC presser from Chair Powell, where essentially from my vantage point, he sort of waved the white flag and said, Yep, we think we need to cut rates and we're going into an election year. And that to me was like the most bullish. You know, oh, no, it was the green flag, point. baby. It was not the a white flag. flag. Yeah, sorry, it was a green, green flag. flag. It was the start. I mean, it was yeah. start, gentlemen, start your engines and go for it, baby. It was, it was as political an announcement as I remember from the Fed. So, look, I. It's it's very difficult to to ultimately predict these things. I think I've got I don't want to for uh, front run some of my other predictions, but I think the thing that is different this time, right? If you if you want to believe that uh, right now the stock market is very richly valued, um, if you want to believe that something is different this time, you have to have an explanation for that. And my explanation would be the enormous fiscal spending and deficits that we're running at the current rate. I think that is ultimately what people missed and didn't understand quite well enough going into. 
2023. And my, my next prediction for you was going to be that government handouts are going to accelerate. And I see that on two fronts. So I think you already, you already started to see, this was a framing that I had a little while ago, which was a, it was probably already too late, even when I was starting to wonder about this, but I sort of saw two roads that we could go down as a country. Uh, one was more austere, which was to say, hey, we got to rein things in, balance the budget. I still think if you talk to a lot of people, they're holding out hope for this. I'm not necessarily holding out hope for it anymore because the other route is, all right, ultimately the underlying mechanisms that we allocate capital through and that we organize society around are broken. Um, and instead of addressing the root cause, we're going to address the symptoms. And what that ultimately means is handing money out. Yeah. So you that's like the bread and circuses of Rome, but you start to see those sorts of handouts in Biden writing checks for or forgiving uh, student loans. Um, there was actually, uh, there was the Gavin Newsom thing in in California, which was giving people money to to buy gas. I mean, these are, these are the sorts of things that have been tried years over year, you know, oh, centuries. I'm telling you, it's coming. And you know, that's another thing to your point. What, what did everybody miss last year? That's probably one of the biggest things people missed was the third year of the presidential cycle. So there's lots of four-year cycles. There's crypto four-year cycle. There's this presidential four-year cycle. The third year, so the year before the election, is always the best year of the stock market. It averages 16%. Okay? So on average, it's 16%. And that clearly is what people missed. And that that fiscal spend, people had no idea we were going to give hundreds of billions of dollars to a bunch of money launderers in Ukraine. We had no idea that we were going to be back in another war that Ms. Yellen says we can, we can clearly afford two wars. Like, what? You're financing wars? Oh, that, that's what big money does. It finances wars. Um, central banks, that's what they were created for. Um, you know, back in the 1600s, they've been financing wars ever since. So I think we all missed that. And that changes. The fourth year, you know, the election year, is on average a muted year for markets. It's, you know, on average about 6%, which is, you know, not, not high, not low. Um, but the, the swing factor is what you're talking about, which is we are definitely leaning socialist, communist, like handout, totalitarian. I mean, I hear some of the stuff that's pretty, I'm like, are we in Venezuela? Are we in Argentina? Are, are we in, the Weimar Republic. I mean, that's actually a scary, scary thing. I I read this. A guy did a long series of posts. I wish I could give him credit, but I can't remember his name on Twitter. Going through the history of Weimar. Oh my gosh, I had no idea. And and you look at the things that they did, and you look at what's happening in America. It's like oh my gosh. I mean, it's it's like the same playbook. Like down to a whole bunch of stuff, it, it my eyes were just like why? I mean, because yeah, my eyes were wide open, and that that resulting hyperinflation, it was that could never happen because we have the world reserve currency. Well, guess what's happening right now? There's a chipping away. There's an assault on petrodollar status, and Saudi's now talking to Russia and China. And they're kind of giving us the hand to the face. I, 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 I'm not saying it's going to happen tomorrow, but I, I think we're closer to a loss of control event than people think. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of Blockworks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but Blockworks Research is the most blue-chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount, and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code MARGIN10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. All right. I have a... 
I have a, I have a broad, you know what? Actually, I have a broader prediction on that, and I'm actually not going to agree with you on that. I have a, I have a distinct, I have a distinct prediction. So, this was, this is a very long. This is not a 2024 prediction, but my framework has changed on how I see the U.S. Ultimately, again, there are d- different roads that we could ultimately end up taking, and I think this will, this will probably come down to leadership. I think, um, like a strong leader and social view could change this. But uh, the way do we have I, any of those in America, do we, do we have any like I, we do any? not in presidential races, not in presidential races for whatever reason. But I, I think this could be changed with strong leadership. But the way that I'm going to call this the the Europe Europeification of America. And actually, you know, when people talk about people, especially in crypto and Bitcoin, love to talk about the Roman Empire. They love to draw these comparisons between America and Rome. Well, you know how Rome actually ended? It wasn't, you know, the city walls didn't topple in 450 AD. <laughs> you know, it wasn't, that, that actually didn't happen at all. In fact, what ended up happening was there was an Eastern and Western Roman Empire and that transitioned into the Byzantine Empire, which lasted for another thousand years. And you know what the Byzantines called themselves? Romans. They called themselves Romans. Yeah, no. they, yeah, they just, so basically I, there's a really great, again, I show this podcast all the time, but you should go and listen to the, I'll link it in the show notes. The rest is history. When did the Roman empire fall? And this guy Gibbons, you know, there's the fall of the, you know, there's the official sort of division, et cetera. And I think it's 453 uh, AD is the date, but the Roman empire really continues basically for another thousand years after that under a slightly different name and heritage, et cetera. So, you know, the, the people that predict these sort of stepwise falls, big events. I just don't think that's ultimately going to happen. And But what I do see the U.S. shifting towards over time is more of a, you know, a slow, um, unless you know, we still have the, the, the power to change this, but a slow, gradual decline and something that looks more like, more like Europe, how they've surrendered their power over time. France hasn't capitulated. You, the U.K. hasn't capitulated. They look less powerful than they did, you know, at the, at the current, at the zenith of their powers. In 1913, it's an important year in a lot of ways, 1913, <laughs> UK was the global superpower. Yeah. Europe, you know, with the UK is kind of the, the, the point of the spear, Europe was still strong, but the UK was the superpower. The sun never set on the British Empire. They were colonial all over the world. They They owned everything, everywhere. And People forget that it took 31 years from 1913 to 1944 for the dollar to replace the pound sterling as the world reserve currency. 31 years, which again, isn't thousands of years, but it's still a long time. And and then it's only since 1944 really that we've been the global superpower in America. And on average, right, that that if you go back, we've talked about this many times, it's about a 70 to 80 year run these days. It's not a thousand years like the, the you know, good old days of empires lasting. But every empire in the history of empires has fallen. Every single one. There, is no, there are no exceptions. This won't be the exception either because, and it's, it's because humans are going to human. Humans are going to go toward greed and you know the the tippy topness of of um, uh, what's the word I'm searching for? Uh, not capitalism, but cronyism. I mean, cronyism. Once that 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 starts, and once once the corruption starts, you can't stop it, and it eventually eats itself. I mean, it literally feeds on its own momentum and corruptness, and and it becomes so corrupt that finally it's so weak because they've 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 taken all the assets for themselves and they've left everything else like their defenses and their and their long-term strategy and philosophy and then they just get whacked by some upstart and whether that is you know China whichever says that could never happen or somebody else or some other region I don't know or maybe right maybe we're on the verge of the nation stateless borderless metaverse world that we are moving toward i don't think we're there i i i don't think we're there yet i really don't i i think 
I think long term, the the snow crash vision of the world. Yeah, I get it. The fact that it was written in 1991 still boggles my mind. Um, but there are some great sci-fi that was written. Like if you go so, go back to some of the Arthur C. Clarke or William Gibson, like these guys were so visionary in the types yeah. of stuff they were writing about. Even back in the 60s, it's incredible. Well, I just I just tweeted the guy. I think it was I think it was Arthur Clarke, the guy from, yeah, he's on the BBC, and he in nineteen. 19- 50, I mean, it was before I was born. It's 1958, 58. He was predicting all of these things about telecommunications and wireless. And wow. I mean, it's wow, wow. Yeah, I agree. All right. I've got one more prediction for you, and then I'm going to call on you to make another one. So the government handouts, I think there's the bread and circus. So I think we see an acceleration in more government handouts to yep. the people. But I also think there's going to be increasing handouts to like, let's, there's a great word Russell Napier used called credit rationing, which I think again, picks up in 2024. So maybe a minor prediction within there. I think the BTFP is now a permanent program. The bank term funding program is never going away. It's going to continue to exist. And I think you're going to see more of these quiet alphabet soupy type programs that uh, the government and Treasury and Fed use to essentially prop up a sort of failing, or at least let's call it heavily manipulated system. Um, and politics are going to be increasingly important there. So if you have a system that's fundamentally unsound and requires running a $2, tr- uh, $2 trillion per year deficit um, and significant financial easing, then you have a system that's not sound. Things will continue to break. And then it's on the government to decide who they want to bail out selectively. So I think you're going to see more of that in those instances of credit rationing. And I think politics around that are going to be very weird because if you think about it, these are just selective, sort of non-transparent bailouts. And I think politics is going to play a big part in that. This is just option four, right? When you become indebted, when you are an empire and you become indebted because of the corruption and and your inability to, to actually live within your means, you got four choices. You can pay back the debt. Nope, right? We talk about tax all the wealth of all the people in America. You can't pay back the debt. 33 trillion, you can't, you can't do it, right? So that, that's off the table. You can't restructure it because China and Russia don't want our bonds. You can't default on it because then you get kicked out of office. And so, so four is you devalue it. And and this is the part that I, again, I don't want to predict Weimar, but man, this, this is really scary when you think about your prediction right there and what it means for this ossification of the haves and the have-nots. So, right, we have, we have the greatest wealth and income inequality in the history of our republic pretty impressive. And when you start bailing out the people at the top and handing them money through like, like this, like if, if a bank can borrow from one side of the house and lend to the other side of the same house and make a spread, that's a riskless transaction. That That's literally a government handout. And when when they vote to give money to other governments and then it comes back to the defense companies that they own pieces of, or when, when this one crazy, when Ms. Pelosi, like while she's in session on a bill that has to do with semiconductors, her husband is trading NVIDIA options, like in real time, it, that corruption will lead to what? It will lead to a need for the your, your other prediction, which is, you got to give people money to afford stuff. And so what happens is as you devalue the currency, prices start to rise. Well, the problem is they don't rise linearly. They rise parabolically. And again, I, I don't want to predict a Weimar-like, but but that's where you get. You You will eventually get to that point where the only way 
for the average person to survive is through a government handout. And, and then it's not even about survival as much as it is just vote for me, just keep me in power. And so I got to give you enough free electricity, free gasoline, spending money, UBI, whatever, whatever it is. Um, although I haven't heard the term UBI for a while. It's interesting. It was really hot. Like if I look yeah. at Google searches for UBI, there was that spike maybe 18 months ago. I don't, I don't hear people talk about that anymore. Um, but I'm, I'm very worried about the devaluation. Now, what that does for one of my other predictions, what that does for Bitcoin prices, yeah, good stuff. All right, give us, Mark, give us uh, uh, your Bitcoin prediction. I'd love to, love to get, I have some, some of my own as well. Look, um, this is the year. This is the year I've been talking about. This is crazy. I've been talking about this. I, I went back and I, I searched through Twitter to find when I started talking about this. I've actually been talking about this since 2018, which is hard to believe that's six years ago. I mean, that, that's a long, but I've been talking about this cycle, this 14 year cycle that people are just sick of hearing about, but now it's here. I mean, we're a week, no, we're days, we're days. We're a couple days away from 2024 and 2024 is the beginning. And this first year, this, this first year, 2024, we've got the halving, which takes the fair value from 5152. Let's just round it to 50 to a hundred. Okay. So a hundred, then we get the beginning in June of the parabolic move of crypto fall. So we, we transition from crypto summer, which is that migration toward fair value to the parabolic, oh my God, FOMO, everybody in, in the pool. And I've said this time, I think there's less leverage in the system. So maybe we only get one and a half fair value in this cycle instead of the 2.3. You know, that's, that's max and those guys are at 250, whatever. I'm probably in the 150 range. That's just on supply and demand of of the having and and the change in the the available supply. Well, then, in addition to the normal supply shock, we get this demand shock, and it's happening. January eighth, they will crown the king. Now, I'm 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 weakening a little bit on bit on BlackRock only. People have convinced me that there's enough going on that a few others are going to get approved. I still think they're going to give at least a couple day head start, maybe, but maybe they do them all. I don't know. But, but on January 8th, um, that's, that is the day, you know, the King's birthday, my little guy's birthday, my 12 year old turns 13. Um, so that's going to get, they're going to prove the ETF and, and tens of billions of dollars are going to flow into it in that first week or so. And then ultimately, hundreds, plural, of billions. That could, I, I can't even put a number on, on what that could do because we only trade $8 billion a day and there's a whole bunch of people who said they're not selling. I, I can't think of an asset. I really can't think of an asset where you had both a supply shock and a demand shock at the same time uh, I mean, I really can't. Other than oil, maybe in the seventies, maybe, maybe. Yeah. So, if I had to pressure you for a, a price, these are these are the things that are always the toughest. A price prediction. For I know Bitcoin twenty twenty four. Where do you think we end up? I I look. I I think one fifty is in the bag, and I'm just going to stick with that. I think I think we're going to one fifty, and I think there could be a positive above that if if things go as, as I think they are going to go. Um, there, there are a couple of things that I, I just can't predict. Like if they don't approve GBTC converting, right? Barry had to resign. Why did Barry have to resign? Is he under investigation? Is he not? I mean, maybe like CZ, you resign and they leave you the, the, the rest of the company alone. I, I don't know, but that's a weird 
outcome. So maybe that means they are going to. So if they didn't approve GBTC converting, then that 25 billion was going to be selling pressure, right? That was going to have to get converted into the BlackRock fund. And so that would temper the demand, right? Because there'd be just a swap. Whereas if they do allow that conversion and the fees just go down and people don't have to sell that, that puts more pressure on the upside. So I can't predict that one because I don't have any inside baseball on, on uh, you know, Gigi's view on, on Barry and, and Michael. Um, so I'm going to stick with 150. All right. I've got, well, I'm, I'm a little less optimistic than you, but I was going to say uh, we break all-time highs. I had, you know, these things are so difficult to predict, but I, I see Bitcoin somewhere around, um, like somewhere around 75 uh, going up, you know, by the end of this year. That's what I would say. Um, maybe uh, that, that's going to, maybe that's ultimately not optimistic enough. I, I don't know how to, to handicap this, like buy the rumor, sell the news. If it's then more heads, buy the news, buy the news. I have no alpha in being able to predict, is it going to sell off immediately after the ETF? I'm not actually that interested in answering that question because I don't think it's super relevant. I think when I look at the price of Bitcoin, and, you know, at the end of 2024 versus today, I see higher and somewhere just under a double feels about right to me. Yeah. The thing that, the thing that I, I, I can't, well, I'm struggling for the words here, but I, I can explain it rationally. But there's part of me that says, no, 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 there should be something else in the formula, in the difficulty adjustment, because the fact that the block rewards get cut in half means the price has to double or the miners are done, right? Because the miners adjust, you know, the costs adjust to the price and they buy more equipment and and they're running not at monster profits, but, um, and so- if you look at all the previous cycles, the fair value doubled. Like, well, but but isn't the difficulty adjustment supposed to? But I don't think it can. And I think, and so th- just that alone, right? Just the thought in people's brain that suddenly this is not a fifty thousand dollar asset; it's a hundred thousand dollar asset. I think could trigger a level of, of FOMO, partly because at some point we, we just got to go to Satoshi's, I think, personally. Like, I don't want to be Berkshire Hathaway and have this unattainable price. And because the average person should understand that you can buy a fractional piece, but they don't really understand. They just hear the Bitcoin price. I would much prefer to, to talk in Satoshi's. And so then there's enough for everybody. Like right now, 21 million Bitcoin. Someone did the calculation. It's like 0.00128. Bitcoin per person in the world. Now, not everyone in the world is going to have some. I mean, just not because there's a bunch of people without electricity and all kinds of, but but that's a really small number for just the average person to just, although I, I take that back, right? People buy Doge at 0.0000, whatever it is, or, or Shiba, maybe Shiba, this point, like seven decimal points of zeros. Like just split that so you get a real number. Mm. So I have a, I have a less of a prediction, but I don't view Bitcoin as a retail asset. I think in a, basically Bitcoin is making its transition to an institute. Like re, someone, someone tweeted this a while ago and it made it an impression on me. You know, people were talking about the price of Bitcoin going up and, you know, crypto Twitter is going to be really happy. Someone said crypto Twitter doesn't own Bitcoin. They own altcoins. And this has been it's my. True. Here is, the, here is the dynamic that I think people miss when they're talking about this, which is that you actually have, multi, like people are always looking for the next thing. How, how many times, Mark, have you tried to get someone to buy Bitcoin? And they said, well, it's already gone up too much. And then they immediately start looking for the next thing. That Absolutely. is a powerful, that is a powerful psychological thing that people miss. And I actually think one of, one of my predictions for this year was that I don't know if we're going to get an e- ETF but it's going to become a narrative and ETH is going to do very well based on that. Right now, Ethereum is very beaten up as an asset. Um, I I think one of the things that confuses people about it is that there's roll-ups and so they don't know what to buy anymore. Do I buy Optimism right. or Arbitrum or do I buy Ethereum? And that's caused it to lag. There's no crypto-native bid for it. But I do think 
as soon as the Bitcoin ETF goes live, and I think it will surprise to the upside eventually, even if not immediately, then I think people will start asking what's next. And well, hey, there's this new, more tech sort of play, which is called Ethereum. And oh, you get something called yield. And look at what the Bitcoin ETF just did. And that's what the ETH ETF will do. And I think that's going to start to be a much bigger narrative. Yeah, well, no, it's, it's a really important point because I think what's getting lost, to exactly your point, Bitcoin is an institutional asset, but it also is, if, if you believe this as, as I do, if Bitcoin is the new base layer of money, right? Base layer of money, which is what gold has been for 5,000 years. Every central bank buys gold, puts it as the base layer, then they issue debt on top of that as currency. And then we all use credit cards and loans. And so you build this, this stack of quote unquote money, but the only real money, right, an asset that exists in the absence of a liability is the base layer. Yeah. As Bitcoin replaces that, okay, because think about it. What, what people are talking about, people aren't talking about, I want to put all my money in the Bitcoin ETF. They're talking about 1% or 2%, right? What is that? That's a gold allocation. How much gold do, does the average, even if you actually boomer, I don't know, 3 4%. It's not like they have 40% in gold. It's not like they have 50% in gold. And why do you have any? Well, it's my hedge. Okay. The hedging instruments are small allocations that have asymmetric upside potential in untoward outcomes, right? Hyperinflations, you know, recessions, whatever. Why do people own gold? They own gold because it outperforms in times of difficulty, right? It zigs when everything else zags and it over time accretes value because it holds its value relative to the asset you price it in, right? An ounce of gold is always an ounce of gold. Always. But we don't price it in gold. Right? We price it in dollars or yen or euros. Same thing with Bitcoin. One Bitcoin is one Bitcoin. It's just a digital form of this, this beautiful asset that existed for 5,000 years where the, the stock, the amount that exists relative to the flow, the amount that's created new every year versus what's lost or stolen, is pretty low. So the stock to flow ratio is very high. Bitcoin actually now is higher. And so in that world, it's exactly as you described. Bitcoin is kind of like the, eh, I have some, it's my hedge against disaster. It's my FU money, my running money, whatever you want to call it, you know, and institutions, the big ones, central banks are going to start buying it. And then ultimately it displaces gold in a digital world as we move completely from analog to digital and everything's digital, which I think is going to be the case. In that world, that is the base layer. And then all this other tech stuff, and whether it's Ethereum, and now you got you know, the Solana people saying, oh, look, ours is much better. And it's so funny because I have this, this, this I have two minds of this. I believed what the people told me that Solana had fixed their problems. And the price says they have. And I've been talking to some other people saying, are you freaking crazy? No, this is just a pump and dump. This is a bunch of people pumping the stock. I mean, that's not pumping, pumping soul so that they can liquidate the FTX bag and everyone's going to be very sad when that, when that happens. I'm like, oh, so you mean they haven't fixed the transactions? And, and they sent me a log of all these transactions that didn't go through. I'm like, but they told me they fixed that. So they lied. And then you have the problem of the increasing supply. From the last time Solana was 265 bucks or whatever to today at just over 100, we've increased the supply by 100 million tokens. Wait a second. Wait a second. So I'm, I think ultimately tech wins and where the developers develop, which ain't close. Ethereum, it's like 89% of developer activity. I think that's the number. It, it's not close. And so there was the quote, if Ethereum didn't exist today, 
and was just invented, would anyone use it? Given the price difference between Solana and Ethereum, you know, well, based on price, no, but based on efficiency, effectiveness, and stability, yes. Because arguably Solana is not fixed. Now, the Solana people can can tell me I'm I'm wrong, but this multiple people have said no. You're it's it's, it's not fixed. So so I have a so I have a, a different perspective on that. I actually think so. My entire I actually published a newsletter on this. I'm going to show myself uh, called the Crypto Theory of Everything, which is I think one of the I had this experience. I'm you know I'm in Montana with my family for the holidays, and I had this experience that many people in crypto probably have. Some of their friends came over, you know, these people that are in their 60s and they're like, well, so what's going on with crypto? You know, and I can tell that these are people that have been fed mainstream media narratives and they think yeah. it's like some fad or some criminal thing. And I have this moment of panic and I have to describe what crypto is. And what I do is I start defaulting to Bitcoin and I describe the problem. Central banks, money printing, digital, Bitcoin, digital source. But that's been for a long time for me, a really unsatisfying answer because crypto is much, much more than that and much more, much more. Uh, uh, broadly encompassing. And ultimately what I think crypto is, is the creation of a new commodity, which is block space. So block space is something that is basically digital storage that anyone can permissionlessly read and write to. And that commodity is a commodity and it behaves as such. Yeah. And well done. What you've started and what you've, what we've seen in the first version of uh, crypto is multiple different blockchains try to produce block space with different sets of trade-offs. So Bitcoin produces block space, Ethereum produces block space, Solana produces block space. Every one of those that have an associated token, the token is a commodity. And Bitcoin might be the only one that's money, but uh, I, I, I actually disagree. A lot of people are going to get salty at me about this. I had a prediction this year. Ethereum, I think it pivots away from its ultrasound money narrative. I have an idea for where I think it should go, but I, I disagree ultimately with that framing. But ultimately, these things behave like commodities. And I think what we've seen the last 10 years is a good old-fashioned commodities boom. And I think you can go back and look at the 1970s, the 2000s, where you've seen just this explosion in commodities. But ultimately, whether it's ETH or SOL or Bitcoin, these things are going to moderate because the societal pressure of commodities is for the price to be maintained or go down. When oil goes up too much, we've talked about it on this program, policymakers will move heaven and earth to make it go down because Absolutely. people use commodities. It is the opposite with equities. Equities go up. And part of that reason is compounding. But another part of that reason is because society engineers equities to go up. If the stock market goes the down, in which they're priced. Right. If the stock market goes down, our policymakers will move heaven and earth to make it go up. They're the opposite. So I think we're in this commodity boom expansion period where we're going to get different flavors of this L1 commodity block space that people are going to mess around with and refine. And uh, ultimately, but ultimately, Solana, ETH, all of these things are trades. They're going to do very well over a short period of time or like call five or 10 years, whatever you think. But eventually the societal pressure is for it to moderate so that you can build crypto enabled build businesses on top of those commodities. So between the ETH and Solana stuff, I don't really know the specifics about the, the validation stuff, but I would heavily protest that this is a pump and dump. Um, Solana has really interesting trade-offs compared to Ethereum, yeah. where... Ethereum has optimized for solo stakers. So because they view themselves as a money, uh, Ethereum views itself as a money comparable to Bitcoin, you need solo stakers in jurisdictions all over the world uh, so that a government can't easily crack down on it. What that has meant is very low hardware and bandwidth requirements, which has translated to high fees. If Solana, and basically you know, now Ethereum's roadmap to scale is we're going to put layer twos that inherit some of the security properties of Ethereum on top of that, and people are going to use and transact on that for their cheap fees. But those layer twos are not as decentralized as Ethereum, so you now essentially have to take counterparty risk of your layer two. And there's a whole other distinct set of trade-offs that you have to make. Whereas Solana basically said, we are going to take a bet on the idea that hardware ultimately ends up scaling with software. Anatoly used to be an engineer at Qualcomm. He was very used to writing software with the idea that hardware gets more efficient every year so we didn't have to rewrite a software. They had higher hardware requirements for uh, the base layer. But what that's meant is that you don't need layer twos. Um, ultimately, the idea is that hardware is going to improve so that you can have solo uh, stakers just like you do in Ethereum. But you can do the base layer is so much more performant. 
And that is the trade-off between Ethereum and Solana, at least as it exists today. Yep. And it's a good, it's a compelling trade-off. So I actually think Solana, because it's also smaller in market cap and liquidity, is going to outperform both ETH and Bitcoin this cycle. I don't think it was a pump and dump. I think you just saw the beginning of outperformance. So I would definitely be bullish Solana. And then the, the other thing for Ethereum, which I'm also bullish on, is that I think they pivot away from this ultrasound money. I think crypto like optimizes far too much for supply. Like really, these things are networks, just like companies in the beginning. Mark, if you were investing in it, I mean, supply is a part of it, right? But in the early stages of a network, a company or whatever, you actually see a ton of equity issuance, right? Because you're growing the pie. But the question is, what do you get in exchange for that inflation? Um, and so the re- I just think everyone is optimized far too much for supply, way under-indexed for generating demand. Um, and I think that ultimately ends up becoming more in vogue. But last, last thing about Ethereum is that it's called itself ultrasound money. I think it pivots away from that and starts to brand itself as yield-bearing money because you can earn productive yield, unlike Bitcoin. You can't do that. You can do right. that with Ethereum. So right. I think that ends up being the narrative for going into the new year. But that's no, all, all, all great predictions. And you know, to, to the point, Bitcoin, just by the law of large numbers, even if even if we're you know right and it doubles or trebles from here, that's that's a great outcome, particularly in in twelve yeah. months, an amazing outcome for for most investors. Um, but it isn't the the big return that the speculators want, and and this is this is as you were describing before. Remember, there's investors, there are traders. There are speculators and there are gamblers. It's the hierarchy of, maybe it should go like this. There are investors, then there's traders, then there's speculators, then there's gamblers. Maybe at the bottom of the barrel as opposed to the top. And the the investors buy assets that are below fair value. So we can determine the fair value of Bitcoin. It's below the fair value. We should be accumulating it. And and this is the... One of the most amazing accumulation patterns I've seen in a long time. The last 12 months of Bitcoin, a beautiful chart. Ethereum, kind of the the same way. If you believe in this, you know, usage of Ethereum in terms of where everything's being developed and all the L2s, and you say, yeah, that, that that's a, that's in those are investors. Then you get down to to the traders, or oh, I just need movement. And that's a little bit what's happened in Solana. I mean, maybe there's some people that really believe in it, but 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 there there's definitely some trading going on there. Then you got the speculators who are give me the new stuff, give me give me that new you know dog token or you know fish token or whatever. Well, the problem is when you get to the degenerate gamblers, right? Who are who are using house money, borrowed money, and they're speculating in stuff that they don't really care about. Nor do they, they don't want to know about the tech. All they want is number go up and get rich, get me rich. And you, that's been going on forever. And I, and I love, I love, love, love your analogy of a commodity boom. And it's funny because I'm, I'm in San Francisco. So I wrote Digital Gold Rush when I was in San Francisco, actually in Eureka, California, believe it or not. You know, not truly had my Eureka moment in Eureka, California. But I came out here in 2017 with my family and we were driving up through the Redwood Forest and it hit me that this was exactly the digital gold rush. And I went back and did all the history of Sam Brannon, who was the first millionaire and he had the general store and Yerba Buena and all this stuff. And that's exactly what's happened. It's exactly, Mm -hmm. and, and to your point, gold, silver, copper, you know, led all these other commodities got found while everyone was searching for the gold. And it turns out we use a lot of lead. We use a lot of copper. We use a lot of silver. And all of that commodity boom is this supply and demand. And to your point, supply is one piece of the gold, but demand. I mean, think about the amount of silver that's needed as we electronified the world right? Produce computers with all the soldering and all the, I mean, think about the copper that's needed as we electrified the world. 
I mean, I was down in, in the subway. They built this new subway uh, in downtown San Francisco for the first time in forever. And they have this, it's an electric train and the copper wire that, that conducts the electricity is not like the third rail in the L in Chicago. I want to know how much that costs because it's like this big around. That is a very valuable piece of, I'm surprised someone hasn't tried to steal it, but you probably get shocked. Um, but that, that commodity analogy is really important. And I like how you, you phrased it block space. Because that's why I'm so bullish on Bitcoin long-term, not just as digital gold, but as the base layer of the digital age, right? Where every high value asset, if I have something that I really, really care about, I want it on the most secure, most stable, strongest network chain. So, you know, I'm going to put my asset ownership, digital property rights, right? Away from the word NFT to digital property rights. I want them to settle there. I may use other blockchains for other transactions. If I want to send a USDC to somebody cross border really fast. Yeah. The phantom wallet is pretty, pretty, pretty good. I I, I will say it's pretty good. Yeah. I don't know about that. I, I'm less sure about that. I'll be honest with you. I, I don't, I'm not sure I agree with it because A, I think even in early stages, the data hasn't proven that out. And again, the number one thing you should look at is Tether, the stable coin and where it settles, which is mostly Tron, um, which is like the least trusted sort of thing. I also think one thing that I, I consistently. Well, it's because it's all a scam. That, that whole thing's a scam. Yeah. So I'm just. I, I, I don't comment on that but i i think one of the things that i also uh one of the things i also think people people need to reorient themselves a little bit from being a user of of these networks to a business building on top of the networks so here's like something that i hear very often frequently i'm a user i don't care about 0.01 cents versus one cent okay as a user i agree with that i do not care about that you know where i care about that if I'm building a decentralized exchange and I'm building for market makers that have to place hundreds of thousands of orders per day, then suddenly the difference between 0.01 cents and 0.1 cent is massive. And people don't, people don't think often enough about the perspective of, of building a business on these change that leverage block space versus being a user. And I think that I ultimately think about security is that people are going to opt for the trade-off, which is, I trust this enough, but it's cheap enough. And, and there are going to be- I'm going to push back. That's what I think. I'm going to push back. If, if, you're, if you're transacting stuff you don't really care about, yeah, security is not high on your list. If you're talking about an exchange where accuracy matters and quality and security matters, ownership matters, I think you you want this the most secure, the most safe, and if it costs you a little more, that's okay. And I, I think what we're going to see, right, is and we've seen this as certain chains get exploited, they kind of fade away. And we've got lots of examples of that where there was some new innovation and some new chain. There was a big, and then there's a big exploit, and it gets whacked. And Solana kind of has this problem. There was the wormhole exploit, right? And the VCs pumped in $300 million to you know, fix it. If I'm thinking about building a, a commodity or securities exchange, do I want in the back of my brain the risk that there's some vulnerability where my clients could, could see all their assets drained? I don't know. I don't know. Well, I think every blockchain, it's just funny how like history repeats, right? What was the original sin of Ethereum? This is why the Bitcoin people hate it so much. There was a pre-mine. Oh my God, there was a pre-mine. There was a DAO. The DAO, there was a massive DAO hack and everyone hard forked the chain away from the hacker. Yeah. That is not really, you know, if we're being honest, that's not really crypto ideals. Isn't, I mean, people are going to yell at me, scream at me. They they scream at me for a bunch of stuff, but isn't the Satoshi wallet a pre-mine? I actually don't know. 
I don't think I mean, so. I think I, I don't think so. But but that would be hilarious if it was because this space is rife with contradiction. Well, even if it's not a if even if it's not definitionally a pre-mine like it happened before it went live. Yeah. It it was an advantage mine, right? That wallet accumulated a million coins before the vast majority of people knew that this thing existed. And I got a ton of pushback on this thing that that I made a comment. Again, I think it's interesting. When I put, I don't know, thousands of hours, I, I, I can't even count it up, of content out there over the you know six years I've been doing this in, in the digital space and, and longer, but thousands of hours. And I'm always amazed that someone will take a 60-second clip and act like that's the only thing I believe. Like, are you yeah. kidding me? I mean, out of thousands of hours, you're going to say that's 60 seconds? And, and all I said is, I, you know, thought that fair, that there, there could have been another way to do fair. And, and maybe fair doesn't matter. Maybe it's not about fair. And that, that's a, but that's a conversation to have. But it's, it's just funny. So the fact that there's one wallet that owns 5% of all the known Bitcoin. It's probably higher than that because some gets lost or stolen, right? And maybe that 5% is gone forever. Maybe it's in a multi-sig and one of the persons has passed and maybe, I don't know. But I just think that that's just an interesting thing to me that how is that different? Like I saw, I saw somebody say this, this is crazy. I saw someone say this, that the Satoshi wallet is going to solve world poverty. Like, what do you mean? Well, that's, so this frustrates me. Well, that, that's like a pre-mine, right? That's like saying that somebody acquired this big chunk in an advantage state and now they're just holding it, holding it, holding it and then they're going to use it for the, the the good of mankind. Now that would be a good thing, but but isn't that the same as a as isn't that the same concept? I don't know. I think I think there's a lot of part of the reason I think that this exists. And actually you see this, I wrote this in the newsletter too. The psychological impact of a commodity boom. You People are gold bugs, right? When, when do these gold bugs start to start to become? If you look at the price action of what gold did during the 1970s and 80s, holding something that goes up that much has a real psychological impact on you. And if you look at how gold has performed against everything, cash, interest, yield-bearing cash, bonds, stocks, anything, over the subsequent 40 years, it has underperformed every single thing. But the gold people are more adamant than they have ever been right? Here's the other thing. The, ultimately, when you get down to something like block space, there are all, all that exists is a set of trade-offs and they're extremely technical and only like 0.1% of people understand them. But the whole yeah. point of blockchains is that they allow social coordination. So the people that are championing one particular set of trade-offs versus another have to find a way to get broader, a broader, larger set of community to buy in. So they construct these narratives. The good, the little blockers are good. The big blockers are bad. Uh, that Ethereum isn't decentralized because it has a pre-mine. They have to, they have to pump out these like narratives that are simple that anyone can grasp onto because yeah. their viewpoint, their accepting their technical trade-off requires larger buy-in, and that is why it feels so tribal. And like this is good, this is bad. I, I have a very distinct view. I, I think ultimately we're going towards a world of many different chains, many different. I, not many, probably five, five to six major yeah. base layer commodity type things yeah. that ultimately end up getting used and then tons of different equities. And like that, that is the, but that's why I think there's so much crazy tribalism and silliness, but. Okay. It, 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 part of it is we just don't know, right? We've talked about this too, right? Is it, is it like the internet where there's five protocols that matter? There's, there, there were 80 protocols. Now there's five that we use every day and they make a nice stack. It's tougher to, you know, is Bitcoin and then Filecoin and then Ethereum. And, I mean, maybe that works. Or is it a bunch of L1s to your point? I agree. The problem with a bunch of L1s, the bridges, horrible. Yeah. Maybe someone solves that. that. Maybe Chainlink fixes that or something. But I but right now that cannot that cannot be the world because that's 
just too much attack vector and attack surface. You. And that's, that's where that's just not going to happen. And the one chain rule all chains, the Lord of the Rings, like Bitcoin for all. Okay, but show me the L2 that scales. It's not lightning. Show me the L3s and L4s. They don't exist. So I, I think we don't know, but we're just starting. 2024 is the beginning of the cycle. The next four years, we're going to see massive innovation. Then we're going to see a bust, just like the 2000 bust, just like the you know 1986 bust, just like the 1958 bust after the 54 to 58 with the mainframes. But from that bust, you'll wipe out a bunch of pretenders, but the real winners will emerge and we'll know five, six, seven years from now, which structure we're moving to. But the next four years, the amount of innovation, the amount of building, the amount of, of fun we're going to have. So to, to bring it back to positive, right? We are days away from the beginning of the most fun four years we've had for 14 years, right? Not since 2010, when you had the solo mo boom and the next four years of social media and and connectivity and and carrying this around 100% of the time it was awesome and 96 to 2000 if you i mean some some be word around but i was there so much fun i mean i had so much fun from 96 to 2000 and then 2000 2002 wasn't much fun but on the other side of that the companies that were built, this is, this is the time. And this next four years in the digital space, in the digital realm, it's going to be unbelievable. Yeah, I agree. So much. Totally agreed with that, Mark. I agree. That's, you know what? That's probably a good place to end it. I uh, go into 2024 and beyond extremely optimistic. Can't wait for it. And, um, yeah, as always, my friend. Best hour of my week. Uh, can't wait for awesome. You're doing awesome. Together. Enjoy, enjoy Montana with the family. Uh, to everyone, thank you for an amazing year. Uh, again, just so grateful for everybody's time and uh, and partnership. Right, this is this is a partnership. We get the feedback. We we engage, and um, I, I just uh, I really really enjoy this. And and you know, one of the things that makes investing so special is the cumulative effect of the dialogue and debate and the changing of the mind and and the and the migration to take advantage of new inputs and that's why the business is so much fun and and why this process said when you invited me a year plus ago and I, I don't know if I want to commit so glad I did is clearly the best hour of the week and it's such a valuable exercise to to go through so thanks i appreciate it mark and again i totally echo what you said this is i guys thank you so much for tuning in and listening to me and mark we uh we do a lot to make the show good for you guys and um and yeah we we're we're looking forward to continuing the the train into 2024 so mark cheers my friends uh my cheers happy 2024 in the sf so all right all right have a good one